You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Prophetic Prototype, Episode 2, with Eric Walsh. We're going to start by just getting into the scripture reading. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Our message today is entitled, The Cry of Light. The Cry of Light. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share your word. I ask now, Lord, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. Our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So we're going to continue on with John the Baptist. I want to jump from Luke yesterday to the book of Matthew to today, the third chapter. The Bible says, and in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what John the Baptist would say, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern, leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Desire of Ages, page 101, and this, after this description of John the Baptist, Ellen White says, as a prophet, John was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And preparing the way for Christ's first advent, look at this, he was a representative of those who are to prepare a people for our Lord's second coming. John the Baptist is a representative for those of us who will be alive preparing the world for the second coming of Christ. So it's interesting when you look at him. Remember yesterday we talked about his upbringing. We talked about the fact that he was in a secluded place. We talked about um, the fact that um, his parents were specially chosen, that his purpose was given to him, that he grew in the Holy Spirit. Today we see just from the previous verse that he ate different than other folk. He dressed different than other folk. All of this was a part of him being ready to usher in and prepare the way for Christ's first coming. All of those things are applicable to us for Christ's second coming. Dress reform, health reform, <laughs> country living, all the things that he did literally are all the things that we are given to prepare us for the end time and for the preparation for the soon coming of Jesus Christ. But I want to give you four things that John the Baptist had to understand as a reality that we have to understand as reality today. I'll give you two in this message and two in a later message. 
Four realities of now. It's a picture of the things going on on earth now. These are, are some of the protests that were going on in Hong Kong uh, over the last several weeks. How serious these protests have gotten. And they lead to the first reality. The first reality is that the cup of iniquity for John's time, it was full. But for our time, it is also full. Christ came at a time when the world was in complete spiritual darkness. Only a flicker of light was left. There were only a few like John the Baptist's parents or like Mary and Joseph and a few others in Israel that were still righteous. The paganism and darkness, superstition and spiritualism of the Roman Greek empires. If you went into the far-fetched lands where there were more, even more primitive cultures, there were uh, animism and, and, and sun worship. The globe itself, there was just a flicker of light when Christ came. If Christ's coming had been delayed even a hundred years, there may not have been anyone for him to come into and to do his ministry. So at that time, John the Baptist, before Jesus starts his ministry, he is a cry of light. He's literally crying out for light to be seen so that he can illuminate the world so that, the, so that they can see. But at the time when he came, the cup of iniquity was full, just like today. Galatians 4.4 4 says it, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. In other words, it was like the ripening of a fruit or, 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 or the time for labor in a pregnancy. Time was full. And why was time so full? Let's look at it. One, there was a lingua franca. The Greek language was accepted everywhere, and it was one of the best written languages for the scripture to be recorded in. Greek is such a descriptive language that love does not have one word. It has three words. That uh, allowed the early Christian writers specifically to write in such a way as to really give powerful meaning in the scriptures. But not only was there a lingua franca, the Romans and Greeks had built extensive road systems and shipping uh, 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 systems so that when it was time for people like Paul to preach, there were roads for him to follow, ships that he could take. It was the right time. The gospel came when the world was dark in sin, but there was an ability technologically, linguistically, for the gospel to spread around the world. Let me tell you something. The same thing is happening today. The very technology that works so much against us, by God's grace, with ministries like Amazing Discoveries, we can use those very same technologies to spread the gospel around the world. 2 Timothy 3, this know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. The Greek word there is chalope, which means difficult or hard, hard to do, hard to bear. The scripture says that in the last days, times will be Difficult. They'll be hard to bear. It won't be that you can't bear them, but they'll be difficult. Why will they be difficult? Men will be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. Look at that. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That literally... In the last days, mankind will be more concerned with entertainment, sports, pleasure, intoxication, sexual self-gratification than they will be with loving God. Here's the kicker. Paul is not writing to the world. 
He's writing to the church. Having a form of godliness, he says, but denying the power thereof. There will be many in the last days who claim to have godliness or claim to know God, but they will deny the power. What power? We're going to talk about this in another one of my talks. What power are they denying that would transform their lives? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is under fire in the last days. We'll talk more about that a little more. But from such, Paul says, turn away. Matthew 24 says it like this in verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The Antediluvians were brilliant people, tall, giant people. They lived on a canopied earth um, where, where, the, where the partial pressure of oxygen was diff different so they could live longer lives. Their animals were bigger. Their fruits, their vegetables were bigger. They were intellectual giants. And yet they were so corrupted and wicked that when Jesus is speaking about the end times, he said, listen, like Noah's time, that's the way it's going to be in the end time. How was it in Noah's days? Sister, Sister White says in the Desire of Ages, page 633, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every ma imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6-5. The inhabitants of the antediluvian, that's the pre-flood world, turned from Jehovah refusing to do his holy will. They followed their own unholy imagination and perverted ideas. It was because of their wickedness that they were destroyed. And today the world is following the same way. It presents no flattering signs of millennial glory. The transgressors of God's law are filling the earth with wickedness. Now here's what the thing, I like what the spirit of prophecy says there. She says, there is no Huh. There is no flattering signs of millennial glory. I was talking to someone who I grew up in the church with and left the church. And he said to me, human intellect is the Holy Spirit. I said, man, that's a bad thing. Because if man's intelligence is the Holy Spirit, why is the world so messed up? Man can't figure anything out. Going back to the turn of the century, the previous turn of the century, not the last one, there were promises of, a, of an age of enlightenment and that all of a sudden the technological advances, that the, like, like the Jetsons, we were going to change the world. The 20th century was one of the bloodiest centuries ever in human history. So this century comes and they say, well, here we go. We're going to change the world. Everything's about to get better. Technology is going to solve all problems. Has that happened? The truth of the matter is, no matter how much man works to fix this world, he will never be able to do it. That's why you can get into politics and, 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 and follow politics, but let me tell you, there isn't a politician on earth that's going to solve this world's problems. Because the world is being filled up with wickedness. Well, one of the ways is mass shootings. You can see there, look at the numbers, uh, these, all of the different years. You see 2019 is on course in the United States. To be a year with the highest mass shooting count ever. The mass shootings keep happening. And look at it, look at to the right there. It, it, this goes all the way back to 1982. If you, we forget that mass shootings have been happening that long. And it goes all the way up to uh, last year when uh, the Las Vegas uh, uh, strip shooting where 58 people were killed. We live in a world where in church, the conference I was in before, they had they mandated that we have active shooter drills in church. And they said, listen, 
we, this is, and the police department, we had to call the police department, they participated, and they, they had, the, you know, they had mock drills, divine service. And they come in and say, this is what, I said, listen, they, they, where are you going to hide? It's pews. Right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, unless we're going to throw hymnals at the people coming in the building or something, we're in trouble if somebody comes in here with a gun. I went to one state, I won't say which state in the union it was, they said, that's all right if they come into our church because half our church has guns on them. <laughs> well, that's not our church. <laughs> our church, we don't want people with guns in them. Not in that neighborhood. No, we don't. This is the reality. In fact, two of my, I took care of two patients. I was living uh, just about four hours from Las Vegas when that shooting happened. As a physician, I wound up taking care of two people, two women. One of them, when the shooting started, she was at the, at the country music concert. When it started, she began to rant. She twisted her ankle and fell. She got up and ran a mile on that ankle to another hotel to safety. When she was x-rayed, she had fractured her ankle and run, ran a mile on a broken ankle. It's the power of adrenaline. Another woman, the bullet went in her back, through her midsection, through her bladder, and through even some of her gynecological parts, straight through her body. And I was doing wound care at the time, and I took care of the wound. Let me tell you something. The news glosses over the carnage that really happens, the psychological trauma. Right now, these things are just bars on a graph. Let me tell you something, church. There are people who will never be the same. They will suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because they happen to be in the wrong crowd on the wrong day. The world is wicked. And I'm only talking about mass shootings in the U.S. They, obviously, there's a lot that goes on in other parts of the world. But it's not just mass shootings. There's the increase in racial tensions. Here we signed a, a civil rights law in the United States back in the 1960s. We had these discussions decades ago, and yet it's interesting. It seems as if it's only getting worse. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, listen, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is one of the signs of the end. The word nation in the Greek is ethnos, which means ethnicity. It's not a race. What, what, the, what, the, what Jesus is saying is, listen, as you get closer to the end, Different groups of people, watch this, even groups of people that look alike are going to fight. Have you heard of the Rwandan genocide? The, literally, the world is going to be so wicked that any difference between people, Satan will exploit and turn people on each other. I was a product of this. I'll digress for a second, but when I was in high school, I went to a high school where there were a lot of uh, kids who were neo-Nazis. And this was in the South, in the United States. I moved from the north to the south. And the first day I went to school, I went into the bathroom and there was a picture of an ape on the wall. And there was a noose around its neck and it said, N-words, go back to Africa. First day of school I ever went to school. Now up north, it was not like that. I got along with everybody, white, black, we all just kind of hung out and got along. I went down south, I couldn't believe it. Even in class, the, the, profet, the teachers would make comments and I was just like, this is unbelievable. And it made me bitter. And I began to study with the nation of Islam, the Rastafarians. I studied Islam itself. I began to, I, I would go to all African people revolutionary party meetings. I was trying to find somewhere because I was raised Adventist, fourth generation Adventist, and I didn't feel like the church addressed any of this. So I started to look outside of it, and I learned later on, I went to see uh, Louis Farrakhan speak, an incredible orator. Give him that, incredible orator. And there's some things that he hits on the head when it comes to injustice. But theologically and racially, you got to watch what he says. 
In fact, I went to see him speak at the Miami Arena. I was in medical school. By now, I've, I've been going to hear him speak for years. They'd, they'd actually put me on a committee, um, and um, uh, the Stop the Violence Committee. I went to hear him speak at the Miami Arena. And again, great orator. And he said, the black man is the original man. And they say this all the time. And I said, you know, I've heard that before. He said, and I can prove it. I'm eased up in my seat. He said, I can prove it. He said, 66 trillion years ago. I said, 66 trillion with a T? Well, not even the evolutionists go back that far. He said, 66 trillion years ago, he said, the black man blew the moon off of the earth with dynamite. The Chinese invented dynamite like 3,000 years ago. He said, and I can prove it. And at this point, I'm like, okay, I got to hear the rest of this one. He said, when the astronauts went to the moon, he said they could still smell the dynamite. You laugh. I sat down in my seat, church, and I repented. I hung my head as 8,000 people stood to roaring applause in support of what was said. I shrunk down in my seat and I repented. Father, forgive me. I have allowed my scars to put me in a place where the doctrines of devils is being taught. The racial tension is going to get worse. The only answer to not becoming polarized and picking sides is to realize that you are not a member of any race. That in fact, my citizenship is not on this planet. You see, my citizenship is in the kingdom of the living God. And I have been adopted into the family of God. Wherefore we cry, Abba, Father. I am no longer a product of my, that's why I don't do Ancestry.com and 23andMe. And I don't care where I came from. I'm concerned with where I'm going. We live in a world that will have racial charge and, and racial splits all the way through. Does that mean that we ignore racial injustice? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we don't love one another? Let me tell you something. It means that the church must be a place that when the world looks at it, it is a place where people of all kindreds, kindreds, tongues, nations, nationalities, ethnicities, races, all come together in love because we are covered by one color, the red blood of Jesus Christ. That's the church's charge. By this men will know that you are my disciples. Why will they know that we as Christians are God's disciples? Because we have love one for another. Racial tension is only going to increase. But not only that, the addiction problem. I, I hit addiction a little bit yesterday. The opioid epidemic in the United States is a big problem. America consumes, we're 5% of the world's population. We consume somewhere around 90, 95% of all the world's narcotics. And this is not by accident. Uh, every day in the, in the U.S., and these numbers are a little bit old. This is from the um, federal government's database. Every day in the United States, 130 people died every day from opioid-related drug overdoses. 130, that's like a small airplane crashing every single day in America. 
And I could go on with the numbers here. There are about 2.1 million people addicted. I'm talking about how terrible the times have become. And I told you yesterday that the Veterans Hospital, it was the veterans that taught me the line, God made the human heart so big, only he can fill it. You try and fill your heart with anything else, you become addicted to it. This, this thing actually came out of, uh, and this is the crazy thing, it is literally the, the, the JACO, the Joint Commission of, the, of Hospital Accreditation. Your hospital must have JACO um, approval to receive government funds in the United States of Medicare and Medicaid. You can't get that money without it. It was JACO in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry that came into the hospital and said, pain is going to be the fifth vital sign. It's very risky when you make something subjective be treated like something objective. You understand what I'm saying? And then they said, listen, if you don't give, if people come out of here and complain their pain's not being treated, if you get complaints, doctors can lose their licenses, hospitals can lose their certifications, big bad things will happen. Guess what everybody started doing? People blame the medical system, but I mean, if you want to keep practicing and, and staying in business, people just started handing this stuff out like candy. That's how we got an opiate epidemic. It wasn't from outside the country, it was from inside the country. And pharmaceutical companies made, companies made fortunes off of this. In fact, one of them just got sued by, I think, Oklahoma and has to pay like a half a billion dollars. The world that we live in, people will addict you. Revelation chapter 18 talks about it. That Babylon, when it is falling, the merchants cry because she used to do, she used to traffic in all these different things. But two of the things she trafficked in are, 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 are men and the souls of men. Babylon literally was, was, was trading slaves and the souls of men. They want your soul. And, listen, and look at this. This epidemic has taken so many lives, destroyed so many lives. It's one of the signs of the end, in my opinion. Luke 17, 28 says, Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat and they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. He says, Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Just like what happened. And I, I challenge you to go to the Dead Sea. I've been there in Israel. And look, it is literally a description of fire and brimstone. Brimstone is sulfuric acid. When you mix fire and acid, one of the byproducts when you mix it with organic material is salt. To this day, the Dead Sea is actually a reminder of what happened in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's much more archaeological things that are being hidden that happened there that shows that what the Bible says happened there really happened there. But why did it happen? Ezekiel 16 tells us, verse 48, this is speaking really to us in many ways. It says, as I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, not she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, look at this. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Look at what the number one sin is. It's pride. Matthew 3 and verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And look at what he, he, he if, he's a, if he's a representative of what we're supposed to be like, let's look at what he preached. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about, uh, round about Jordan. He preached to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. You see that? John the Baptist preached that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is now. And people were baptized and they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And this is what Ellen White says, because he, he, he called everybody out. They repented of sin. She says he saw his people deceived, self-satisfied, and asleep in their sins. 
He longed to rouse them to a holier life. The message that God had given him to bear was designed to startle them from their lethargy and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. Did you get that? The, it wasn't to help them figure out how to better manage their money. Not that that's a bad thing and the church shouldn't teach it. It wasn't about how to be a better worker at your job. It wasn't about how to be, uh, you know, a better citizen. Not that any of those things are wrong to preach. John the Baptist had a mission and it was singular and definitive. His job was to get his people ready. And what he, what, what the spirit of prophecy is saying is that, listen, his messages were designed to startle people out of the sleep that they were in, to shake them up, make them realize what was going on so that they could recognize their wickedness. Here's the thing. If you are preaching and you never allow people to know uh, about their wickedness and their sinfulness, as the, 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 the more impotent the message, the weaker the cry against sin, the less the perceived desired need for the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you getting what I'm saying? Let me tell you, I wouldn't be a crowd. When I went to Oakwood University, our, our Adventist institution in North Alabama, those guys could preach. E.E. E. Cleveland, C.D. Brooks, Elder Eric Ward, those were preachers. You went to church and what, the joke was, you came to church, you come out limping because when they preached, they were stepping all over your toes. <laughs> they preached what was relevant to us as young people. Calling us out of the world, out of sin, out of the entertainment world, make, asking us, what are you listening to? Decrying if you were in sexual sin, they were, they were no joke. And because of it, I said, man, I need the Lord. But had they preached fluffy, soft stuff, I'd have thought I was all right. I wouldn't have known I needed the Lord. She says, before the seed of the gospel could find lodgment, the soil of the heart must be broken up. Before they would seek healing from Jesus, they must be awakened to their, to their danger from the wounds of sin. You don't think you need a physician if the preacher keeps telling you you're really not that sick. I believe one of the most definitive things the enemy is trying to do in these last days is to cause our preachers to preach smooth things. Sounding brass, tinkling cymbals, to preach messages that don't stir the heart, that don't cause you to self-examine. They want to preach messages that make you feel like everything's all right, like Bob Marley. Don't worry about a thing. So that when you leave church, you feel good about yourself. You feel good about your situation. And when people leave church, say, well, that was a powerful message. And you go right back into a life of sin. And don't realize your need for the blood of Jesus or for the Holy Spirit. What kind of preaching is that? It's like a doctor. You come in and you got a big skin cancer, melanoma growing out the side of your head. And I say, man, no, that's just a decorative wart. That doesn't look so bad. You'll be all right. Show it off. Get a tattoo to accentuate it. God does not send messengers to flatter the sinner. He delivers no message of peace to lull the unsanctified into fatal security. He lays heavy burdens upon the conscience of the wrongdoer and pierces the soul with arrows of conviction. The ministering angels present to him the fearful judgments of God to deepen the sense of need and prompt the cry. Here's the cry you want to get when you're done preaching. What must I do to be saved? When I was at Oakwood, that's how I would leave church. I said, Lord, what do I need to do to be saved? I am a mess. 
I'm a wretch, I'm wicked, and my thoughts are wicked, Lord. What do I need to do, Lord, that I might be saved? Then the hand that is humbled in the dust. I love what Ellen White says here in Desire of Ages, page 104. Then the hand that is humbled in the dust lifts up the penitent. The voice that has rebuked sin and put to shame pride and ambition inquires with tenderest sympathy. And this is what Jesus says to you. Don't worry about anybody else right now. This is what he says to you. What will you do? What will thou that I shall do unto thee? When, when you've heard the hard word and, and you're convicted of sin and you're worried about what you've done and will you be accepted by God when the word of God has pierced your soul, Jesus doesn't come along and knock you over. The hand that was in the dust writing the sin reaches over and grabs you by the hand and lifts you up. Jesus throws his arms around you and whispers in your ear, what can I do for you? What do you need? And in that moment, you realize just as God has called you and called out your sin, his son has paid the price for your sin. You don't have to live in sin. And let me tell you something. Some of us as Christians, we spend all our time regurgitating our past and all of our past failures. Let me tell you something. That is the work of Satan. I challenge you to accept the blood of Jesus Christ, to sincerely repent of your sin. My Bible tells me that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to do what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You do not serve a God who's going to just leave you in sin. My Bible tells me he doesn't just forgive you of your sin. He forgets your sin. After all the mess David did, there are verses later on in the Old Testament where it does not even mention his sin. It just says he kept the commandments. He followed God's ordinances. He said, wait a minute, David? Until you remember, God takes your sin and casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. You know, man has been to the moon. Man has never been to the bottom, of the, the, the deepest recesses of the bottom of the ocean. We say we've been to the moon, we, 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 you know, we brought back moon rocks. We've not been to the bottom of the ocean. Isn't it interesting? God could have said, listen, I'm going to put your sin on the moon. Because at a time, it would seem like nobody would ever get to it. He said he put your sin at the bottom of the ocean. So you don't need to live in the shame or the guilt of your past. You can be free. The story is told of a, of a Young man who was going to play poker one night. It gotten to a point where he was drinking a little too much. So he went, true story, one of the Western United States. He went to go play a game of poker. Had a little too much to drink. He thought the guy across the table from him was cheating. He reached down, got his gun, pointed across the table. Boom, shot and killed the guy sitting across from him. Guy fell over dead. The police came and got him, took him to jail. His family was distraught, of course. He'd never done anything wrong in his life, never been in any trouble. They're trying to figure out how they could help him. They stood by him as he went through the trial. The judge, the jury sentenced him to death in the electric chair. True story. 
By the time he was sentenced, a few years had passed. His family decided, listen, maybe we can write the governor, get a petition and ask the governor for a stay of execution, meaning he'd spend the rest of his life in, in jail, in prison, I should say, in prison, but he would not die in the electric chair. So everybody in the house signed the petition to get him a stay of execution. And over the next few months to years, they signed it, the people on the street, the next street, the block, the next block, the town, the next town, the county, the next county, till one day, the governor was sitting at his desk, baskets and baskets and baskets of petitions are brought in before the governor. The governor was a Christian. When the governor saw the mercy of the people of his state, he didn't write for a stay of execution. He wrote out a full pardon for the young man. He sat down and he wrote it out. And the day came when he was going to go and deliver this full pardon to the young man. The governor went into his closet and slipped on a preacher's robe. He said, what better way to give this man this good news than dressed like a preacher? So he gets into his limous the limousine and they whisk him off to the state penitentiary. The warden meets him there. He goes running up the stairs to death row. When he gets to death row, he, the, the warden says, look, I'm going to walk you down. I'll show you the room. I'll, I'll take you down there. The governor and the governor says, no, 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 no. I'll go myself. Which cell is it? And he says, the fourth or whatever cell it was on the left. And the governor goes walking down dressed like a preacher and he walks down. And when he gets to the cell where they're holding the young man and he turns to go inside, the young man jumps off of his cot and, and shouts, get out. The governor says, hold on, I've got news. I've got good news. The young man says, get out. You're the fourth preacher to visit me this week. I'm tired of hearing from preachers. Get out. The governor says, hold on. You don't understand. I've got news. I've got good news. He says, I was raised a Christian and look where it's landed me. Get out. The governor tries again. He says, you don't understand. I've got good news. The young man says, if you don't get out, I'm calling the warden and the guards and I'm going to have you put out. The governor pushes that letter deep down in his pocket drops his head and he turns and he begins to walk back to the warden. The warden escorts him back to the limousine and the governor is whisked back off to the governor's mansion. The warden is thrilled. He comes running up the stairs, runs into the young man's cell, plops down on the cot, crosses his legs and says, how did your visit with the governor go? The young man says, wait a minute, you mean that guy dressed up like a preacher was the governor? The warden says, yep. And he had a full pardon written just for you. The young man says, quick, give me pen, give me paper. And he begins to write, dear governor, I'm so sorry. I did not know it was you. The letter is mailed. The governor receives it a few days later with tears streaming down the governor's face. He takes the letter, turns it over, writes on the back, no longer interested in this case. The day comes for the young man to die in the electric chair. Stand him in front of the electric chair and they say, is there anything you want to say before you die? The young man with now tears streaming down his face. He says, yes, tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer. Tell the 
other young men of America that I'm not dying because of what I've done wrong. He said, tell the young men of America that I died today because I refused to accept the pardon. Let me tell you something, church. Hell is going to be full of people who refused to accept the pardon. You see, Jesus received the petitions in heaven, the great governor of the universe. And instead of coming to earth dressed in fancy clothes, he, he wrapped himself in the flesh of an infant, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life as an example to us. He died on the cross and with his own blood, church, he wrote out for us a full pardon. Let me tell you something. I don't care how bad your crime. I don't care how long you've been sitting on death row. I don't care how many people have pointed at you and said you're guilty of the worst kinds of sin. I don't care what you did or where you've been. If you can accept the pardon, the blood of Jesus Christ, it still washes. It still covers. I'm a Christian because of the blood. I'm a Christian because like that young man, I deserve the death penalty. But I found one who was willing to die so that I might live. And guess what? My obedience to him isn't because I, don't, I think my obedience is going to save me. But let me tell you something. If you get out of death row, you better go out there and behave like you're never going to do anything wrong ever again in your life. You better not even be caught jaywalking after that. My obedience comes because I love what the governor did for me. I love the sacrifice. That's why he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not separate issues. He loves you so much he was willing to die because he wants your love. And with your love comes your obedience. And don't worry if you don't think you have the strength to obey. I love Jesus because his blood doesn't just wash away sin. If you can get a good blood transfusion from him, his blood will give you the strength to get victory over sin. Somebody today needs to give their life to Jesus Christ. Somebody listening to us online, somebody that's watching this later on, maybe you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you don't. I challenge you today to not be like that young man. I challenge you today to not be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who went to visit John the Baptist. I challenge you today to humble yourself. Forget everything you know. and Put your trust in him. Surrender everything to him. Let me tell you something. It'll be the best decision you ever could make. You see, a lot of us are worried about tomorrow and we're worried about this life. You know what I'm worried about? Eternity. I have found that this life is painful. I'll give you my testimony later on in the week. I'll tell you how just like that, this whole world can come crumbling down on your head. Everything you worked for and built can be vanquished in a moment. But you know what I found? was stable ground like a rock when I was going through a trial. 
found that if I am in Christ Jesus, he takes care of his own. That with Jesus in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. I challenge you today, make sure Jesus is in your vessel. Do not let the pardon that has been written for you go to waste. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. This is the cry of light. The light of Christ shining on this world. Accept him and he will take great care of you. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the great story of John the Baptist and the work that he did, the way he preached the gospel with great power. Father God, we, your remnant in these last days, ought, ought to as well preach with great power. Lord, I ask that the stony places of any of our hearts be broken up. That, Lord, we might invite you in in fullness and in truth. For we want to know you, Jesus, crucified and resurrected as our Lord and Savior. Please, Lord, be with your people today. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.